shadow. Hey, Summer. Going Summer, can you say welcome to Inside the Hive? Welcome Inside the Hive. I am your host. I am your host, Dodgers. No, Nick Bilton. Nick Bilton and the Dodgers games. Yeah, Nick Bilton and the Dodgers game. That was my three-year-old son who insisted on helping me do the introduction to the podcast this week, even though he has no idea what a podcast is, or even an introduction for that matter, actually. But he is pretty freaking cute. He also has no idea what this week's show is all about because he wouldn't be able to understand we're going to be talking about the housing market. And if you remember a decade ago this week, we were smack in the middle of one of the worst financial problems since the Great Depression. As a result of faulty loans, banks being able to do whatever they wanted, the housing market had collapsed and the American banking system was on the brink of total failure. It was really, really, really chaotic back then. I was working in the New York Times newsroom at the time in the business section and I remember the looks on some of the editors' faces as we watched these banking systems that had been around for decades just falling apart. Well, after this all happened, of course, there were regulations put in place to try to stop it from happening again. And then, of course, Trump came into power, wanted to help his buddies out in the banking system, and all those rules and regulations were taken away, including the Dodd-Frank regulation, which Trump said was crippling and crushing banks. Anyway, my guest today, Spencer Roscoff, is the CEO of Zillow, and he's going to answer all of my questions about the housing market, what's going on today, if we could be on the verge of something else really bad happening, similar to what happened a decade ago, and what it's like in a system when people who are lower income and middle income can no longer afford to buy homes, which is what's happening in America. Stay tuned after the show as we go inside the hive to talk to John Kelly about what's going on inside the Vanity Fair newsroom and if the Trump administration is going to implode even more than it already is before the November midterms. Spencer, thanks for joining us today. This is very exciting. Uh, I'm just going to jump right in. Great. Uh, are we are we screwed? Is the housing market going to collapse <laughs> by the end of this podcast? Like, what? Where are we right now? No, we're not. We're not screwed. So, um, let me set some context. So, housing is is strongly recovered from the recession of 2008. So, more than half of Americans' homes is now worth more than it was at the last peak, and homes are worth about eight percent more than the last peak. Um, uh, but home value appreciation is slowing. So what that means is the last 12 months, homes went up by about 8%. Next 12 months, they'll go up by about 6 to 7%. So it's slowing, but it's still but So that's, that's slowing. So I'm one of those lunatic people who literally, if you look at the usage on my phone, it's <laughs> it's the real estate apps are, are above everything. We, you're not uh, a lunatic, Nick. Keep it up. We, we like we like you. <laughs> no, but I, I'm like obsessed with I like right. like looking at houses. A lot of people and, are. You know, and a lot of people are. If I like land in, you know, Boise, Idaho, the first thing I'll do is pull out my phone and 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 check out the Me real too. estate markets. Um, it's pretty high up there in Boise, by the way. Um, but the thing that I've noticed recently, just is you know, it's just my little anecdotal evidence here. But I have seen the slowdown that happened, and it happened in like two weeks. It was kind of wild how all of a sudden you would see things that were on the market for days, and mm-hmm. and now you're seeing them on the market for weeks, and you're seeing things that have been on the market and and price drops and things like that. So is this something that that's happening suddenly, or is this something that we were aware of that was coming, or what? Uh, well, it is it is slowing. It's just you have to keep it in context. It's like it's not as white hot as it was say six or twelve months ago. So you're right that starting over the summer things started to slow down a little bit, especially 
um, in some of the higher end markets, uh, like you know, in Los Angeles, for example, um, where uh, you've had fewer foreign buyers. Uh, part of the kind of anti-immigrant, anti-foreigner rhetoric is starting to catch up uh, to at, at the super high end, and that's impacting some really high end listings where we're just having fewer foreign buyers. When you're saying anti-immigrant, is that Trump related or oh, is you're it baiting me? Nick. No, I, it's a it's a good it's a serious question. Is it? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's look, it's the general. The general political climate is one that's not as friendly to immigrants as it was, say, two or three years ago. And so, if you're a, you know, if you're a Chinese buyer or a, um, you know, a Saudi or, um, uh, you know, somebody from Singapore or something, thinking about where to buy that next five, ten, fifteen million dollar house, Hong Kong or London starts to look relatively more attractive than Los Angeles or San Francisco as compared with a couple of years ago. And is that just because of the the Trump rhetoric and the you know anti-immigration stuff that we're seeing, or is it because the housing market here has gone up so much, or does that it, it, both? Both. So it used to be that uh, the high end, especially West Coast and New York, was a really great value on a price per square foot as compared with London or other foreign capitals, and and that's just not the case anymore. It's appreciated so much that um, so, so it's a combination of value having been eroded, but also just the general political climate. So if what's some of the like the crazy data that you guys have seen as of late? I mean, I'm sure that you spend hours and days looking at at fun data. If, we do. It's actually my that would be like my dream job would be to just l- sit and pour through housing data. So so I mean a quick plug then zillow.com slash research is where we put I can do everything that. and you can geek out on all sorts of data and spreadsheets and white papers and analyses, okay, et cetera. Done. Um but um you know what's what's happening in housing is that we are missing five to seven million houses. So you know, what do you mean by we're missing well, them? Well here's so here's here's what the data says. Between eighty five nineteen eighty five and two thousand, there were three point nine permits issued to build new houses for every 1,000 residents. So 3.9 between 1985 and 2000. So, okay, so 80, between 85 and 2000, there are almost four permits per 1,000 residents. residents. Exactly. Okay. So then after 2008, after, after that housing, housing recession, yeah. that went down to 1.9. Wow. Uh, so we're, and if you roll that forward, basically we're missing about 6 million homes. Uh, I'll say it another way, at the current rate of building houses, it will take about five more years to make up for that. So we're kind of five years behind or six million houses behind in terms of the size of the housing stock. Now, the reason for that, I mean, why is that? Well, in 2008, when the financial crisis happened, home builders stopped building. They were building over a million houses a year. They brought it down to two or 300,000. And it took three or four years for that to come back up. But housing demand recovered much more quickly. And so there's just a lot of missing homes in the housing stock. It's particularly bad at the low end and the mid-level because when home builders did start building again in 2012, 2013, um, their land costs were high, the labor costs were high, the material costs were high. And so they built more expensive houses. So they're building 500,000, six, $700,000 homes. There really is just no starter inventory anymore. There's no hundred, two hundred, three hundred, hundred thousand dollar homes uh, built, uh, and so that's why home prices have appreciated so much is because of lack of supply. So one of the things that's that's fascinating and scary and kind of messed up, to be quite frank, is is the fact that people, a lot of people, have been priced out of being able to buy homes. And so uh, I remember when I was in San Francisco a few years ago, and uh, there was a report that came out where they said that um, the based on the price of this was I think 2014 I, I believe but based on the price of homes in San Francisco that there wasn't a single teacher firefighter um, 
or anyone who worked in, you know, a police officer, anyone who worked for those kinds of services that could actually afford to buy a home in San Francisco. So uh, does, uh, what, how does this end? How does this end? Is the, <laughs> I guess the question is like, that's starting to happen in other markets for sure. in LA and New York and other places like that. It's, um, if you go up the coast, it's, it's starting to happen. Uh, at what point is it just a, is it broken and how does it get fixed? Well, it, development is the only way to fix it. And the problem is cities generally aren't open to development. So Vancouver, for example, has, they haven't quite fixed it, but they've uh, addressed this problem by going up. And so if you go to Vancouver now, it's a sea of skyscrapers. It wasn't like that 20 years ago. And when you build up instead of out, you can also you can mandate more affordable housing and you can have more housing units built closer to city centers. So um, it, cities that are trying to solve it are allowing for more development, but that flies in the face of a lot of urban planning and a lot of local politics um, in Seattle, where Zillow is headquartered, for example. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's very difficult to balance environmental interests and, and public interest with the need for more development. And as a result, there's not enough housing built. And as you say, uh, it's a housing crisis uh, of affordability. Um, you know, there here we're recording this today in Los Angeles and in L.A., there are transportation solutions that are, you know, we'll see what happens and if, if these, if some of the boring company uh, attempts to build large-scale tunnels across the city or more public transit um, or driverless cars or flying cars or whatever. I mean, transportation solutions can be part of the solution over a very long term. In the short term, though, it has to be development. So, okay, so you, I have a, a bunch of questions around the stuff that you just said, so we'll unpack it like one at a time. Sure. So as far as L.A., one of the things that I find so fascinating about Los Angeles and the market here is that I remember when I first came here, I don't know, 15 years ago, my sister lived here, and I and I got off the plane, and I, I rented a car, and I had these MapQuest things mm -hmm. printed out, Um uh, and for anyone listening that doesn't know what that is, just Google it. Um, <laughs> and I got lost, and I got a ticket, and I, you know, remember the was, Thomas Brothers. Uh, uh, yeah, it, map, yeah, <laughs> it was. Uh, I remember having my 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 trio with, uh, and like I thought I was so cool because I downloaded my mapping before. But but one thing that's that's happened in LA, and I think it's it's you know it's really predominant in LA because it's it is such a stark difference is over the past I would say five years alone with Uber and Lyft which has become kind of a, a, a pseudo public transportation system um, you no longer need to rent a car uh, you no longer need to worry about if you you know there was always the big saying in LA that you can't drink and drive here you know like it's mm -hmm. but it was meant as like a tongue-in-cheek thing like you can't go anywhere because you will end up drinking and driving on a, on a weekend and right. Um, and then there's also the fact that you would always you would have to get in the car and drive 12 minutes to go get a stick of butter. Now you call Amazon or Postmates and things like that. And so the question is, is we've seen technology change this city in drastic, drastic ways. And as a result, you, you're seeing people move from different markets that wouldn't have normally come here, like New York and places like that. What are some of the things that you think will happen from a predictive standpoint with cities as technology continues to proliferate? through LA, other other cities, smaller cities, things like that? Well, all of these technologies that I, that I ticked off from public transit to tunneling to high-speed trains to driverless cars, um, what they do is they allow housing units further from city centers to be more accessible. So I think what the impact of all those technologies will be is actually more sprawl. But 
we'll have more productive time brought back because you know I I I don't mind driving an hour as much if I can be sitting in the back seat doing work or watching a movie or sleeping. or listening to this podcast or, or listening to a podcast. There you go. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's the, the the these insane commute times of L.A. and really most major cities are only infuriating if they eat into productive time. So I think it will allow for more sprawl, and um, and that is actually good for housing affordability because it 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 enlarges the consideration set. And it allows for more affordable housing to be built. So, do you think that driverless cars will um, uh, will change? So, there's this famous saying about LA that it is 70, 72 suburbs in search of a city. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it's going to flatten out even more, where location, location, location won't matter, and and in some respects, it may become more it may become more expensive to live outside the city because you can take a driverless car that will that will zip you in or you know i it's hard to say i mean i was talking with someone the other day that's involved in a project to try to build a tunnel from the west side so basically from santa monica or pacific palisades all the way to dodger stadium and you can get downtown or to dodger stadium in in 10 minutes uh wow. and and you know the boring company is trying is is working on this um if that happens it actually connects the city to a much larger degree. I mean, you can have people going from Santa Monica to, to downtown, and, and that's almost impossible today. Um, and um, and that's really exciting as you think about how any city can find community and and interaction if if more of the city becomes available to each other. Um, I think that um, I, I do think that in terms of of, um, of wealth. And sort of where more expensive housing units will be built, um, I think that uh, these types of technologies will push out more to the to the margins, more nicer housing units because mm-hmm. you know it, like, like right now you pay this huge premium to live uh, near a city center to avoid the commute. But again, if I'm able to have a productive commute, then it's not as big a deal. And so I think you know it's possible that we'll have. Um, more distributed centers of, of, of expensive housing units. So one of the things that so you've got all this you've got all these piles of paper in front of you with all the this data in it, and, and I'd love to hear some of the cool data stuff that you've 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 pulled out. Um, but one question I have is, when you look at right now Zillow as a company um, and other companies like yours, uh, you can tell me data about what's happened. Um, wh- at what point will and I guess there's two questions here. One is is how how does this eventually help the consumer who's trying to buy a home um, or sell their home at a at a good profit or whatever? But so there's there's that question. But the other question is at what point does the data start to predict the future and you start to be able to to see what's going to happen uh, to be able to help people in that way? Uh, well, on every home in America, we produce a Zestimate, so that's what we think that home is worth. I know, and I think also... my Zestimate is a little low, by the way, but we can talk <laughs> Sorry about, about that. <laughs> uh, and a Zestimate forecast. So yeah. on every home, we show what we think the home will be worth 12, year, 12 months from now. Not 12 years from now, maybe someday. Um, and uh, and we aggregate Zestimates, we call it at the Zillow Home Value Index level, so at the neighborhood, zip code, city, state, and national level. So we produce all those forecasts going out 12 uh, months. Um, so we're already, we already are predicting the future. What's, what's kind of interesting from, a, from an academic standpoint or, I guess, a theoretical standpoint is 
at what point are we influencing the future? And um, we definitely see this in some markets already where Zillow is so ubiquitous and the Zestimate is so widely used that it's really a, an important part of the conversation in any negotiation. Um, I had this happen in, in my uh, personal real estate situation where um, you know I bid something for a, a home that I was buying, the seller uh, countered, I countered, they countered back at a very odd number, like it was, you know, down to a single dollar number. And I asked my real estate agent, you know, what, what is that? Like, why did they counter at that number? And he said, go, go look up this estimate. And they had actually countered at exactly this estimate. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, and so I was hoisted on my own petard. I accepted <laughs> the, the deal at, at that price. Um, and uh, and so it's definitely influencing outcomes already because it's become so widely used. Is there are you guys able to see? You know, you you can see based on my uh, where my where I am and my GPS location on my phone. Uh, you can see the places that I'm looking at. Are you guys able to see where people are moving from to? Yes. Um, what are you see? What are some of the trends you guys are ooh, seeing? Let's see. Um, that's a good question. I don't know if I have that on my fingertips. I'm sure at, at zillow.com slash research, we've got some good some good uh, analyses of that in terms of where people are migrating from and to. And I'll what, post something in the comments. All right, sounds good. <laughs> uh, uh, tweet at us. Um, well, okay, so so tell us some of the stuff you've got in front of you. Give us some of the some of the cool. Um, you know, people ask a lot about mortgage rates, right? It's yeah. a kind of a boring topic, but the fact is that it's actually not on Inside the Hive. It's not a boring <laughs> topic. <laughs> um, you know, not to real estate geeks like you and me. Um, it's super important. So, um, uh, you know, one percentage point increase in mortgage rates. So say from the 4.5 that we're at today to about 5.5 is about $260 a month for the average American's mortgage. So, um, you know, the media likes to sort of obsess about, oh my God, mortgage rates are going up. So what impact will that have on housing? And yes, of course it has an impact on housing. It impacts affordability. What tends to happen though at these at these mortgage rates from three to four, four to five, maybe four and a half up to five and a half, is people just trade down a little bit. Um, so, you know, they, they buy a little bit less house in order to save the $260 a month on, on the, from the mortgage rate increase. Um, so it's, it's not, um, at least at these mortgage rate levels, it, the, the mortgage rate increases that we've seen for the last two or so years haven't significantly negative impacted housing. But, but it means that, then now is there something that is a, as a result of people who are not buying up? I mean, doesn't that create a world where the, the lower income people still are in a worse shape to buy? Well, the, the big issue that we worry about is mortgage rate lock-in. So, you know, anyone that bought a home from, gosh, I don't know, 2010 to 2015 is sitting there with a 2 3 4% mortgage. And when they go to sell their home in, say, two or three years, if mortgage rates are at 7 or 8%, then um, even if they sold, sell their home for the same price that they buy their next home, their monthly payment's gonna be much higher because they're replacing a very low mortgage rate with a very high mortgage rate. And so there are gonna be a lot of people that are basically gonna be locked into their home. And that, as I already talked about, the impact of inventory, that's gonna exacerbate the inventory issue because those people won't be able to sell. So are rates gonna go up, do you think, to that point? Yeah, oh, I don't know about to, I don't know how high I just said, eight or nine. No, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, probably to six or seven at some point. And what, so what is gonna be the, the end result of that, do you think, is that is that bad? Is it? Is there, a, is there a way they can stop that from happening? What's the? Uh, well, it's up to it's up to policymakers. I mean, yeah. if if uh, you know if Trump keeps keeps pressuring the Fed to keep rates low, then maybe maybe that you know maybe mortgage rates won't keep going up and up. But um, for now, the Fed seems to think that the risk of inflation is more important than the risk of a slower economy, and that's why they're raising the Fed funds rate, and then mortgage rates move in lockstep. So. Um, 
you know, I think, uh, gosh, I'm not sure what we're forecasting mortgage rates to be at in a year, but um, I, I would I would guess it's probably about 50 basis points higher than it is today, something like that. So somewhere in the four and a half range. And so at the same time, so that's one thing that could, and I, you know, I'm, there's also the tax issue of when you, mm-hmm. uh, um, when we, which we should get into. So Trump famously kind of screwed over the people who didn't vote for him, uh, and um, and you can write off a lot less of your new home. Yes, um, is that slowing down buying? So what I think what you're referring to is the um, states with state and local income tax uh, deduction, like California, New York, New Jersey. Um, uh, there was speculation that uh, housing would really be hurt there. It it has housing has slowed down in those areas. We talked a little bit about the super high end in California already. Um, it's really hard to know how much of that is due to the tax law um, versus due to decreased foreign buyer interest or the yeah, economic uncertainty or, or who knows what. Um, uh, but yes, our, our data is showing that it's slowing home value appreciation in those markets a little bit. We just did um, a, a very large custom study for the New York Times talking explicitly about this, which concluded that um, overall the impact of tax pol- the, the new tax plan on housing hasn't been nearly as bad as people had feared. Um, so I would call it a slight impact on the, on the high end in a couple of those states like California and New York, but not as bad as feared. What do you think is um – if, if if we continue down the road that we're heading down, uh, which is, you know, with rates going higher and and you you, you know and there's not enough uh, there's not enough homes in the market, it doesn't all sound very rosy. Am I kind of looking at it with my typical Nick Bilton everything sucks <laughs> lens or, or like cynicism. or um, well, it look it's good for owners uh, and it's good for sellers. So um, you know, for every transaction, there's a buyer and a seller. And so what happens with limited inventory is home values appreciate. It's good for owners and buyers, uh, owners and sellers. Now, as you as you said, what has happened in the last couple months is we started to see a little bit of a slowdown. It's starting to shift a little bit from a seller's market towards a buyer's market. I think our data is forecasting that by 2020 it will be more of a buyer's market than a seller's market. So it's slowly shifting um, as more inventory gets built, as um, sellers adjust their price expectations. Um, so it's, you know, it's it's changing. And do you, if, if, okay, so let's just, when we met recently, we were at a dinner party and my wife and I were like, should we sell our house or should we keep our house? <laughs> or what, should, what is your advice to people that say, I mean, I know you're not a, a probably not allowed to give advice on this stuff but let's just <laughs> pretend that you can like is it is it wait is well, it buy is the, it the, the thing is you, ha- you have to live somewhere so i mean you could sell your house but then you have to buy a house yeah um or, or, you can or rent, rent a house. or you can rent yeah. absolutely you, you definitely can rent um and um the the key question i would ask uh you or anyone thinking about this is how long do you want to be in that next house or, or in your current house like what's your time horizon because um people understand intellectually like if i told you that you were moving to a new city and you were only going to be there for six months well you wouldn't buy you would rent right and if i told you you were moving to a new city and you were gonna be there for 30 years you'd probably be more inclined to buy than rent so there's a break even uh, between buying and renting, and it is very market specific. It's based on what rents are like relative to what home values are like. It mortgage rates factor into this decision, and it's all about that break-even horizon. Nationwide, the break-even horizon is around I think five-ish years, if I remember correctly. And you have some some cities where the break-even horizon is much uh, lower, and somewhere it's much higher. So in uh, in New York City, for example. If I remember correctly, the break-even horizon is is quite a bit longer, um, uh, and that's because 
it's so expensive to buy. And yes, it's expensive to rent, but it's relatively less expensive to rent. So I guess the advice I would give to you is um, we'd have to understand what the break-even horizon is and the price range that you're looking at in the city that you're in. Um, my guess is you're better off buying, uh, owning than renting. Um, and if you love your house, you should probably think try of to, it. Try to keep it? Yeah, probably keep it because it's, it's not solely about money. It's also but, about but the place that you love to live. It's true. It is very true. But there's also, you know, there's the the potential impeachment, nuclear war, Twitter. <laughs> there's all these things, you know, on the horizon. Uh, What's it like in, in, your, in Nick Bilton's head? <laughs> it's dark. It's really dark and... Uh, sad and lo- no, I'm just kidding. No, it's it's. I the problem is I talk to people all day about this stuff, and yeah. then you kind of walk away. It's like I I was at Disney last week, and and I was like, wow, that's such a great place here. It's like family friendly, and they're just trying to make people happy. And then you know I go and I talk to people about Trump, and, <laughs> and it's just sad and depressing. And so uh, we'll we'll move on from the sad and depressing for a little bit. Um, one of the things that's really interesting, so so Zillow as a as a company, you you just started out doing the mapping and the and and the home sales home and home prices, home yeah. valuations, and yeah. and you've moved into a whole bunch of different stuff since then. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the things you're doing, and I have a bunch of questions sure. to ask. Yeah, like we we started um, Zillow twelve years ago with home valuations estimates, and then we added uh, lists. How did you start it? Were you just sitting around thinking, oh, it would be really fun to look at real estate on my phone right uh, now? Well, not the, everything except the on-your-phone part, because in 2005, there were hardly were smartphones. So That's true. Um, so uh, we, I had started another company called Hotwire, which we sold to Expedia. I was at Expedia in Seattle, and the management team, the leadership team of Expedia had basically uh, grown weary of online travel, and we wanted to try something new. And so uh, a number of us started looking at other sectors of the economy that hadn't been impacted very much by the internet, and to our surprise, we felt that real estate really hadn't been very uh, very well done on the web. And so... Wow, we, back in 2005, it hadn't. Um, you know, there were a couple other companies that were doing things, but uh, most great real estate information was still locked up in secret industry databases like the multiple listing service, the MLS, or county courthouses, which had tax information and prior sale information, and it wasn't readily available on the internet. And so we left Expedia in 2005 to start Zillow, which launched in 2006, and we started with a price on every rooftop, this is estimate. And then over the years, we added listings of homes for sale, uh, rental listings. Uh, We acquired a number of other brands, including Street Easy in New York and then Trulia. Um, And we've expanded in lots of different directions. And fast forward now to 2008, we're 3,500 employees, we're a big publicly traded company. And we've moved into a a couple new areas recently. Um, Thematically, they're all about the on-demand economy. And what I mean by that is the consumer now expects to be able to press a button on her smartphone and have magic happen. You press a button, the food arrives, press a button, the car arrives, press a button, the package arrives, et cetera. And we feel that that on-demand expectation is going to make its way into real estate whether we like in, it or not. In what way? That you'll press a button and buy a house? Uh, maybe someday, but certainly you'll press a couple buttons and get a mortgage originated. You'll press a couple buttons and sign a, an apartment lease. You'll press a button and pay your rent. Um, you'll press a button and get a sale price for your home. Maybe you won't actually sell the home, but you'll get a, a fair price from uh, from a, a buyer of your home. 
And so we're you know, the, the, the two biggest initiatives that we have are around mortgage origination and buying and selling homes. So this summer, we acquired a company um, that will eventually be rebranded Zillow Mortgages. It's a, it's a mortgage originator. And the idea is that you'll be able to get a mortgage from Zillow. And we think that we can make that a much more seamless easy, painless, maybe even fun experience as compared with the typical mortgage Did you just say experience. fun mortgage experience? Uh, it, I well, <laughs> can't think of anything less fun than getting a mortgage. Good. That means it's ripe for us to disrupt uh, it. Um, I mean, what's fun about getting a mortgage is it allows you to get a house, and that's fun. Um, but you're right. It is painful to actually get a mortgage. But we that, think yeah, that that's, like saying, that's like saying it's, it, you took, you'd have to crawl through broken glass on your knees to go on a first date with my wife it's like <laughs> it's it's the, the process is not fun but okay so when you announced that though your stock plummeted be, and because the, the <laughs> because the the um the markets didn't like that idea why didn't they like it uh well before i answer that let me uh let me layer on another layer of com- yeah. let's call it complexity um yeah. that'll be the euphemism of the day um uh, we're also buying and selling houses now yeah and we're doing that in a couple cities so how does that work it, it allows a home seller, homeowner, to come to Zillow, um, and today it's only in a couple of cities, but in the future it'll be in more, and get an offer from Zillow for the sale of their home. So they come, a couple clicks, they upload some photos, they answer some questions, and, um, and a couple hours later, we make an all-cash offer on their home. And if they like that offer, then we send one of our employees to go and inspect the home. Um, and then we prepare a final offer. And if they like that offer, then uh, then they have this lottery ticket on the sale of their home, and they can go out and shop for their next home really unencumbered. Because the biggest issue for most home buyers is that they need to line up the sale of their home before they can buy their next home. Uh, then two, three, six, eight weeks later, when that homeowner is ready to have us close, we'll close whenever they're ready, we buy their home. Um, we immediately do a couple of, of um, renovations. It's very lightweight, a couple thousand dollars, takes a couple days, and then we relist the home. And so what that seller is doing is they're basically paying us a fee uh, to take the home off their hands and alleviate the stress and burden and, and um, uncertainty of the traditional sale process. And um, it, so it's a, it's a service to these home sellers. Um, the reason that some investors aren't that jazzed about these two initiatives of buying and selling homes and moving into a mortgage origination is they're hard. They're really complex. Um, it, we think that we're leveraging our brand, our data, our skill set, our connection to homeowners and home sellers um, much, in much the same way that Netflix leveraged their data and their brand when they moved into original content creation. But when Netflix moved into original content creation, it seemed absurd. It seemed outside of their, you know, of their of their core competency. It was not a popular decision at all among uh, Wall Street investors. And it took a number of years for that to play out. And obviously, it's been a home run for them. Um, and hopefully, our story ends the same way. So, wh- wh- which cities are you doing this in now? Um, today, we're doing it in Phoenix and Las Vegas, and we've already announced Atlanta and Denver. Why those cities? Is your data say that those are the ones that are easily flippable, or um, uh, housing stock that's relatively similar to one another? So it's easier to kind of algorithmically determine what to pay for the price uh, of those homes. Um, uh, a relatively younger housing stock. Again, so it's easier to forecast uh, renovation remodels. Um, those are a couple of the cities where the team that's running this has the most local expertise already. So you know, eventually, we hope it'll be a nationwide service, but those are the places that we chose to start. And do you, when you kind of look at the way you do these things, um, is there is there any goal in... Uh, it seems like it benefits the seller. 
mm-hmm. um, and it benefits Zillow, but it maybe doesn't necessarily benefit the buyer? Well, we think it'll benefit the buyer at scale, meaning that uh, imagine a world where Zillow is um, you know, selling 10% of the homes or 20% of the homes in Phoenix, and we can create a really differentiated buy-side experience on those listings, where a buyer can um, come see these homes, um, digitally buy the home with their smartphone, get a mortgage originated. And again, this is where these two initiatives are so closely linked is if you're selling a home, you want to be able to originate a mortgage for a buyer of that home. Um, and, and a buyer could have a much more digitized, seamless experience buying that home. So that's the dream. And, and we think that will, will really advantage buyers too. And then, so the mortgage part of it is that you would be able to, so that uh, there's a startup, I, I forget the name of it, that's now doing uh, this thing where you can, you get a mortgage to them and they pay all cash for your house. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And then it, the deal closes in three days and uh, you don't have to deal with all the stress and anxiety of, that comes with the the mortgage. Is is that something that you kind of are looking um, at too? Or? Maybe. I mean, there are a lot of startups um, that are experimenting, innovating around this home purchase. And it's a, a really interesting area ripe for innovation um it's it is it is the without question the most ridiculous thing i've ever done is have to go through that fucking stupid process where they're like (laughs) we need to see the receipt from the parking attendant from 17 weeks ago that that has your signature on it and you're like i i don't have and they're like oh you can't get the home sorry like it just—it's the whole thing is so well, stupid. and it's subject to appraisal as well. So yeah. I mean, if you decide to buy a home for X and then the home doesn't appraise for that amount, then you can't get your mortgage. It's—I mean, it's—it's it's a very stressful uh, issue, and it, particularly in a hot housing market, it makes a um, a buyer with who's has a financing contingency who's getting a mortgage really disadvantaged as compared with an all cash buyer. And that's one of the things that some of these startups are trying to innovate around is trying to make more people look like cash buyers. What happens in a situation where um, you have a place in the Midwest, like a coal town, where uh, the jobs have vanished? Um, do, do those homes just, just – do those towns and those cities just just dry up and, and vanish? Or is there a world in which they can have a second life in a situation like this? Um, well, you know, some of them have found second lives because different, you know, different industries have moved in. Um, but um, – you certainly, if I mean, if you look at a high level of home price appreciation over the last 15 years or so, it's heavily weighted towards the coasts. Um, that's where the appreciation has happened. Um, in terms of of, of of the Zillow offers business of buying and selling these homes, uh, we think it can be as successful in a slower market, a slower city, or a slower macro housing market, uh, because our offer looks relatively more attractive to a seller if it's not a house, not a hot market. I mean, a lot of the times when we make offers on these houses, and the seller doesn't accept it, it's because they say, "I'm going to take my chances and list conventionally and see if I can't get a lot more for it." We said, "Okay, you know, great, go do that." In fact, we have a business um, where. If they don't take our offer, we refer them to a real estate agent. We say, well, would you like to use a, you know, a partner agent of ours? And um, and so we refer them out to a real estate agent. Um, so, but we think it can be successful in a slower market as well. Is there a, I, I, I keep coming back to the, to the poor, poorer people, uh, the lower income people as a, to try to hear, see if, if there are solutions that, but is there a world in which you have a, a, you know, you have the data where you say somebody comes to Zillow and they say, "Hey, I I can afford to spend five hundred grand on a house. I have three kids, and um, 
can you show me where would be the best place to buy a place or, or something like that? Is there a, a scenario where you can kind of, you can use the data to help people that are in need of yeah, that? I mean, well, the, the old, like, you know, I mean, there are whole TV shows around this, right? And, yeah. and, and you know, like, what is what does three hundred thousand dollars get you in different places? And it's always very depressing because the places that I live in, it doesn't never gets you very much. Yeah, you're always like, why don't I live in that place? There's literally a parking spot down the street here for about <laughs> two hundred and seventy thousand dollars. So, uh, um, yeah, my my friend in New York who who told me this weekend that she just got rid of her car. I said, you know, how come? She said because it was eight hundred dollars a month for my parking spot. Uh, that's more than most people's rent. That's literally more than most people's rent. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Um. Uh. Realestate.com, which is our brand that focuses on first-time home buyers, has done some product work around what you're describing, which is helping people get more discovery of you know what can what can I afford in different cities, and then Trulia, which is our brand that focuses more on neighborhood discovery, has done a lot of work on this, where it's helping people figure out what certain neighborhoods are like within different cities, and and really helping them realize that there might be. You know, you might be fixated on these two or three neighborhoods, but there might be these other three or four neighborhoods that are much more affordable that um, that you should consider too. So, some of our some of Zillow Group's various brands have done some work on this. What if you kind of were to fast forward to the future and uh, and and envision in a dream case scenario what uh, a housing market may look like um, for a consumer, a seller, um, everything in ten years? What do you what do you think it is? I think. Um, I think a lot of these cities. I don't know. This is maybe these. This is the difference between an entrepreneur optimist and a journalist cynic. Pessimist. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Let's I would just... like to believe that. For me, I'll just answer mine. It's just. It's just dark and bleak. <laughs> Robots now rule the world uh, uh, and 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 walk over the land, killing people. <laughs> Let me try to give listeners a, a potential alternative. Maybe let's outcome. hear your version of it. Yeah. Um, I would like to believe, and you know, you may be right. We'll see. Um, but I'd like to believe that. Um, uh, some of these transportation innovations will open up more diverse housing outcomes for people. Meaning that um, you know the fact that in you know that 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 uh, a place forty miles away that maybe used to take an hour and a half to commute only takes thirty minutes to commute. That is, if that's now a viable alternative, that has an impact on the affordability of housing towards the city centers as well, because there's just more supply that competes with um, something closer to the city center. So that should make housing more affordable for more people, in theory. Um, I also, and now I don't control that. What I, I, Zillow Group, what I do control and what I'm totally confident of is that the buying, selling, and financing process will be radically better five or 10 years from now, that you will be able to buy and sell a home within a couple of days, not a couple of months. Um, you will be able to get much more certainty on the selling process um, and, and and speed and ease and convenience that mortgage origination will become a lot easier because of us, but also other startups that are trying to innovate around mortgage origination. Uh, that all I'm, I'm certain of, that this, you know, 15% of our GDP is, is housing and it is a it is kind of a mess. Like all, a lot of it is a painful, stress-inducing transaction, and it doesn't have to be that way. And I don't think it will be that way ten years from now. Do you think that um, uh, when you think about, and I know, I know this has become a dirty word as of late, but it's still something that I find fascinating. But we, when uh, when we were talking about blockchain and Bitcoin and all those things, there was you know there was this whole concept 
that was originally floated a couple of years back about how you could imagine housing markets and houses being mm-hmm. on blockchain so that you could say, if you um, were a home buyer, you could say, oh, I want to see the pipes that are in this wall and uh, uh, without having to open up the wall and you can see all the data of how much has been spent and things like that. Do you imagine that there will be a world where some sort of new innovative technology like that will will be implemented into, into housing? Um, I haven't thought much about it in terms of housing supplies like that, um, the components of housing. I've thought a lot about it in terms of housing transactions. And I do think that um, title insurance, for example, will definitely be impacted by blockchain. Um, cu- some countries already are experimenting with putting transaction data onto blockchain. Um, and that it doesn't quite obviate the need for title insurance, but that definitely impacts title insurance and it should make it more affordability uh, more affordable it, it should become you know, much less expensive to get title insurance for example if the title search is in the public domain or you know is is available on the blockchain if you can go back a couple of transactions um so that i think is real all right so i'm going to go back to we have a few more questions and, and then we'll let you get back to to uh searching zillow for for new homes <laughs> uh um actually actually real, before i get to my questions do you have you uh, what are some of like the coolest things you've seen on on there have you ever seen like <laughs> homes where you're like i have to move to south carolina right now because of this old missile silo that's been converted into a um, I posted on on my Instagram a couple of weeks ago uh, the the, um, the Godzilla photos, which I thought were amazing. Um, we started seeing in a couple different cities um, clever real estate agents posting in the listing photos uh, these giant blow up um, like Godzilla dinosaury dragon kind of things like in all the different rooms of the house. It's totally hilarious and what's the uh, reason for it just for virality because people like me then started you know referencing it so they start so they post it in the photos, in the photos and yeah. then somebody sees it and well it's true because i people do send me you know the like there's a as a house in i forget exactly where it was somewhere in chicago where every room has oh my god that's amazing he's, he's <laughs> now showing me uh um a blow <laughs> a blow up of uh Godzilla in the bathtub, fishing, laying down on the bed. That's amazing. <laughs> That's a really great that idea. Instagram. Yeah. Did the house sell uh, I quickly? I don't know, but, I'm sh- but I know it got way more exposure because of my Instagram. And I, I would go see the house just for that reason. <laughs> Can you imagine the real estate broker saying to the client, like, here's, here's a, I have an idea. We're not going to paint the house. We're not going to put in new hardwood floors. No renovations. Godzilla. <laughs> uh, good, good for the seller yeah, for going for creative. it. Um, Maybe the seller is Godzilla, and you know, and <laughs> that's it's him in his house. Um, so the no, so the question I have is, uh, we, I'm not, you know, I, I understand that I do go to the dark side of things a lot because of what I do for a living, but, but we do live in precarious times right now. There's, yes. you know, there's a potential impeachment. There's, uh, there's a lot of division in the country. There's, um, you have a Trump tweeting every two minutes things that could lead to some catastrophe um, or not. And is it, you know, we, 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 we saw some of the uh, legislation that was put in effect after 2007, 2008 to protect consumers and to stop this from happening again has now been stripped out by the Trump administration. Um, do you worry that we could just hit another 2007, 2008 or that something could happen that's, that's catastrophic um, that could affect home prices and home buying and, and 
and affect your business and, yeah. you know? Well, I mean, yeah, I always worry about things like that. Um, but what caused the 2008 housing crisis and financial crisis was easy credit. It was that basically 10 million people from 2001 to 2007 got mortgages that never should have got mortgages. Uh, the home ownership rate went from the low 60% range to 70%. So 10 million households bought a house that they shouldn't have bought a house. They should have kept renting. And that, those mortgages came home to roost and the people couldn't meet their mortgage obligations. And those 10 million people were foreclosed upon. Um, and it was really, really painful. This, I already I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that home values are already past peak value. We're past the 2007, 2008 peak value. But what's driven this appreciation is not easy credit. It's limited inventory. So it is a much more solid foundation on housing today than it was 10 years ago at the time of the last financial crisis. Um, uh, you know, is it possible that banks start loosening their credit and, and giving originating mortgages that they really shouldn't? Sure, it's possible. But I mean, most banks lost a lot of money. And, and many of them lost their, you know, lost, you know, lost their lives um, as companies. And so I think we're, I think we're okay. Do you think that, that, that is there a worry at all that um, in on Wall Street, there's a there's a, the saying that, you know, I don't remember the actual saying, but it's that that it's not the actual it's not how well businesses are doing or or how confident Wall Street is in the CEO or whatever. It's emotion mm -hmm. that is so often driving the markets. It's panic. It's it's things like that. You're now taking technologies like Zillow and you're going to be doing it even more so as as you start to move into to new areas of the business where you could have people that are able to make decisions, consumers that can make decisions that maybe shouldn't happen in two days mm -hmm. um, uh, or, or sooner. Is there a worry at all that, that, uh, that we could see the financial, the real estate market follow suit in, in the respect of the financial markets where um, things happen as because things can happen quicker, they can happen quicker? Yeah, I mean, housing is so illiquid right now, right? It takes, you know, 30, 60, 90 days to sell and buy and move and whatever. Um, I think these things, that, these innovations that we've been talking about, which make housing more liquid, um, like sell your home in a couple of days or, or uh, you know, get a mortgage with a couple of clicks, I think those are good. Um, uh, it is true that I, I guess at the extreme, at the kind of absurd other end of the spectrum, it's the like one click buy a home might you have buyer's remorse <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know sure but we're so far away from that no but we've that... seen we if there's one thing that we've seen over the last four years five years maybe even less is that the technologies that we build with the potential for good are used against us yes. in some way shape or form always yes driverless cars will 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 without question make it so people don't die in car accidents you know the 34,000 that die in the US every year and the 1.2 million that die globally every year will no longer happen uh, however you can be sure that that Russia or North Korea or somebody is going to try to run someone over with a driverless car yeah, or lots of be, people. Cars will be hacked and, yeah. and people put out of work. I mean, yeah. there are a lot of jobs that are yeah, going to be lost. Yeah, there's going to be tens of millions of, yes. I mean, there's 10.5 million truckers in the U.S. that will no longer yes. have jobs. Um, is there, are there aspects of the real estate market becoming more technological that we should be worried about or that you worried about? Um, that's a great question. And, you know, my guess is that at the front end of these innovations, entrepreneurs don't ask that 
of themselves enough. And then, you know, we see what happens five, 10 years later. And you've, this podcast has chronicled a lot of great examples of that. Um, I haven't asked myself that enough, I guess, which is what's the downside of, of these innovations. Um, uh, I will, I will commit to do so. Nice. Well, I will, I'll be happy to, <laughs> I'll be happy to come look through the data and make some suggestions. Um, all right. So, uh, just wrapping up here, um, you have a podcast. I do. Uh, yes. Yeah, so office hours is my podcast where I get, or I get to ask the questions. And so who, so who have you had on your podcast? Uh, uh, Dick Costello, who you had, uh, Cheryl Sandberg, um, General Petraeus. Um, what kind of stuff? Uh, what, give me some like some good things. It's usually Dara Shahi from Uber. Um, you know, it's it's most of my guests have been CEO to CEO conversations. It's kind of you know let people be a fly on the wall when people share notes about how they run the company, how they manage their time, how they set agenda and set priorities. Um, so you know, w- when CEOs have cups of coffee with each other, what do they talk about? Um, I've also explored a lot about management philosophy and and communication and how people lead. Uh, those are things that I'm interested in. And so that's taken me towards the political. I had uh, Secretary of Commerce Penny Pritzker. I had uh, Attorney General um, uh, Holder, Eric Holder, or former Attorney General Eric Holder. I've had a number of political guests uh, on as well. Um, so those are things I explore. And uh, can you give us a couple of little snippets of things that you've, that you've heard from these people that was really sure. fascinating? Um, you know, the, commonly we talk about the importance of a mission-driven culture. Um, again, sort of the, the more positive side of some of the, the things that you I really am explore. getting the point here that I'm a really <laughs> negative human being. So, people um, like me. You know that? It's, uh, they do. Some of them. Um, you are you, – gadflies are important to yes, society. it's and true. There's it's no true. doubt about that. Um, and you are a great gadfly. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I think people do their best work when they feel they're part of a mission. They feel they're part of something bigger than themselves. And so, um, you know, we try that very hard at Zillow Group to instill that sense of mission. So um, the CEO of Mod Pizza, for example, which is a, a chain of pizza restaurants, you know, he was on my podcast talking about um, how they're not just making pizza, they're actually changing lives. And it's a it's a very altruistic culture where they take on a lot of second chance employees, former um, you know, prisoners and, and convicts and others, um, and how important that is to their brand and to their product positioning and to their customer loyalty. And so whether it's um, you know, tech or politics or pizza, a lot of the themes that I explore is, is how to create a mission-driven culture. What's the best, um, the best, the best thing you heard from anyone? Best quote, the best, uh, best quote, um, you know, Satya Nadella from Microsoft was very candid, uh, talking about how they, how he rebooted the Microsoft culture by really throwing out first principle, by, by returning to first principles and throwing out dogma. And, um, and he talks in the episode about how, uh, decisions like, um, making sure that Microsoft windows runs on Apple's iOS on iPads was an unpopular decision internally, uh, but it was the right thing for the company, and they had to, you know, throw out this dogma that they would never uh, work on other operating systems and um, and try to recreate innovation in the culture and in the company by uh, by going back to some of their first principles. All right. So, last question: um, If you had to predict uh, how a, a a Trump second term will affect the real estate market do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing i mean do you think mm. or like if if the democrats get the house back like are there political things that you think would will and could happen that would have an effect on the market well so the most important thing for housing is the macro economy so i guess if i had a good crystal ball on what would happen to unemployment you know job growth um just economic activity that would be my answer not political um I, uh, 
you know, the market hates uncertainty. That I know. And so um, uh, an impeachment process, for example, would introduce a lot of uncertainty. Um, a very contested election, in two, a presidential election in two years, would create uncertainty. So in theory, those things are bad for the equity markets and they're bad for housing. Now, you know, I have a lot of other personal opinions, which I'll keep to myself, but, you know, Why? Cal- just, just share them. <laughs> because I have uh, stakeholders and company. constituents yes, and employees it, it, and customers yeah. of all types. It's, um, <laughs> yeah. But um, but as it, re- as it relates specifically to housing, I think the answer is whatever would be good for the macro economy would be good for housing. And so just to follow up on that, the when we talk about driverless cars and we talk about the fact of, of automation coming mm-hmm. and – you on one hand you have a world where for real estate it's amazing because i could i could go and buy a a home in the middle of the desert for for nothing and uh it could be a beautiful place and i could take a driverless car into work every day mm-hmm. uh and work or sleep or play video games in my little driverless automobile uh or whatever the hell it is spaceship um or whatnot but at the same time you're going to see massive 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 job loss yes is that I think, unfortunately, I think it's sort of inevitable. I don't think there's anything that's going to going to impact that po- policy, you know, politically or otherwise. I think over the longer term, it'll be fine because if you take a generational view, uh, you know, the people that made buggy whips like their grandchildren were fine. But unfortunately, in this case, it's going to happen quick. It's going to happen within the generation. And you know, it's one thing to say, "Oh, we need more computer science education for children," but tell that to a truck driver that's going to lose his job in three to five years. Like that's, that's a much harder conversation to have. So I think that is very concerning. Absolutely. And I think that pace of change is going to come much quicker, much more quickly than people realize. So you should really buy now. And, and I have a, 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 I'll end you with this. My, my uncle was a, is a big real estate guy in England. And he said that the best advice he ever got was don't wait to buy, buy, and then wait. <laughs> So maybe maybe we should do that yeah, until the until the, until the, the coming apocalypse rushes. comes. Buy with a with a safe room, and, yeah, and, and, <laughs> and then wait, and buy a bunker too in the Midwest. Uh, Spencer, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating. Thanks, Nick. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. This is Inside the Hive. We're welcoming back John Kelly. Do you like my little newsroom newsreel thing that I just did there, John? That was pretty good, right? It was not very good, Nick. Anyway, better It's not good. Well, I've decided after speaking to Spencer Roscoff at Zillow that I'm going to sell my house and buy something in Detroit, Michigan, for a fraction of the cost and wait out the housing collapse. Um, I don't know. We'll see. What, what do you? What did you think? Thoughts, um, a, a, interesting conversation as ever, Nick. Uh, I, I'm very concerned uh, with the price of houses. Um, I bought a home a year ago, and um, I see a. Um, uh, I think I bought it in the peak of the market, um, in the Trump bump market, and I think that I'm seeing a major softening happening now, not just in my neighborhood, but um, uh, at large. And I do, I th- you know, I talked to our friend Bill Cohan, and he had a very good point, which is that you know the the stock market peaked about nine months ago. And this is the time when real smart money investors are beginning to look uh, towards um, uh, a, a, a long-term, I think, quiet recession. Certainly, the jobs numbers are great, the enthusiasm in the market is great, but um, but I think we've probably passed the peak. So you know what happens next. Well, I think that's what's so interesting is um, this week 
there's both the Time magazine cover that shows the pictures of teachers in America who have two, three jobs, uh, you know, share a bed with their children because they can't afford more than one room. Uh, and at the same time, the New York Times magazine has a feature very similar, uh, talking about all the second jobs that teachers have um, and how the cost of homes has gone up and the cost of everything has, and yet their wages have not. And and um, one of the things that's so fascinating that, that, that I brought up with Spencer that I always think about is the fact that in places like San Francisco, if you are a firefighter, a teacher, uh, or uh, you work in any kind of medical field where you're not a doctor uh, or a police officer, you cannot afford a single solitary home in the San Francisco area because you've been priced out. And you're seeing that happen all in big cities, all up and down the coast and so on. And That is also Trump true is of editors to... in New York, I should tell you. <clears throat> It is also true of Anderson, New York. Um, it's uh, um, no, it's true, and and uh, and I think what what's going to happen is there's no question that we're starting to see things soften, and uh, and in a world where everyone can be irrational, and we've had Bill Cohan on on the podcast before, he's talked about this. Uh, in a world where everyone can be irrational because they don't understand markets, that is what's going to happen. So my my. My feeling is that we are in for something. Um, Spencer may disagree, but but I I think it's going to be something that's going to be coming pretty quickly. So well, I hope see. not, Nick. I, but as ever, you take uh, you you really do take the bright side. I of do things. take the positive side in things. Let's uh, let's switch gears away from real estate for a few minutes here. Uh, we so what's going on inside the Vanity Fair newsroom? I saw that um, uh, Gabriel Sherman just published a piece where Trump believes there is a coup happening inside yeah. the presidency. Uh, and that um, it is a, quote, administrative state unchecked. And the only person he trusts is the weirdest-looking one of all, Stephen Miller. Can you tell us a little bit about what Gabe found out in reporting? Yeah, sure. A a another another perfect patented Gabe Sherman bomb. Um, you know, uh, Trump is fixated on the author, uh, Anonymous, um, the New York Times author, and in the way that he kind of finds perfect opportunities to distract himself from from the the significant and um, and and terrifying problems facing both his his our our, our you know foreign policy issues the, the, some of the things that Bob Woodward's written about, but also uh, domestic crises and, and the upcoming potential blue wave. Trump has turned his attention, uh, according to Gabe's new report, almost exclusively to figuring out who the rat is uh, in his midst. Um, He's pissed at Gary Cohen for for what seems like Cohen's very clear collaboration in the Bob Woodward book. Um, uh, that book is awesome, by the way. I'm I'm uh, yes, it through is it. without question. It is yeah. It's really just it's it's, it's like watching the Godfather. Um, the thing that's so the thing that just to interrupt for one second. The thing that's so great about it is <clears throat> that you can tell that Woodward, who's what written and nine books, eight on eight of which were on the last eight presidents, and ha you can tell he. He is so meticulous. Every single comma, every preposition, everything, yeah. he, he has made sure it Although is Although I will say, correct, I no agree with you, Nick, but I do, as someone who, who publishes a lot of anonymous source material, I, I do um, feel like he has given, an, because of his uh, because of his meticulous nature, he has given a certain amount of leeway when it comes to the, quoting, extensive conversations. I was, um, there's a passage early in the book between... Um, uh, you know Bannon and Bossy, and then one between Bannon and Trump, and he's 
and he's quoting um, the conversation. It, it was clearly given to him by someone with direct familiarity of the situation. Everyone thinks that the band was the one since um, Bannon, you know, talked so freely to um, to Michael Wolf. Uh, but I th- I thought that's something that I know. Um, uh, it's it's hard to you know you have to earn that in journalism. It's very hard to quote conversations you weren't in. You know, it, it, you, most people characterize them in a different way. That's all. Just just well, a, I feel a, like, a small I feel like, footnote in, in an otherwise. Yeah, but I feel like. I feel like Bob Woodward's earned it. Yeah, he's earned it. it. No, I, I agree. He's earned it. Everything. So anyway, So Trump is, yeah, he's freaked. He's lathered, someone said, which I love. Um, um, and and they're trying to, to, to break the mole. Um, as one person close to Trump told Gabe, and I'm quoting, um, he's going to continue to shame this person. The author will break under pressure or will eventually say, fuck it, it's me. Um um, you know, there were there were briefly plans to administer a polygraph test to uh, staff members, but um, thankfully, it seems like that's um, that's passed. Well, I think that what's so interesting, so, and Gabe uh, is incredibly sourced in the White House, yeah. is, is that um, I I thought when this all came, you know, when this all happened, that that it would be a, a flash flood and it would be gone, and that Trump would be on to other things, but. It must be destroying Trump, and that makes me so happy to know that all he can think about is that someone close to him is back stabbing him in the back. I had a very interesting email this week, which and it was total nonsense, but I'll tell you it anyway. Someone who uh, works in media and has covered Trump for years sent me an email, and I think no longer does uh, uh, work in the industry, but sent me an email and said, look, total out of the blue concept here, and maybe it's just a little conspiracy theory, but there is a world in which Trump could have been the anonymous op-ed writer, or had, or or allowed the someone to be the anonymous op-ed writer uh, to kind of divert things away from things that were going on with Puerto Rico, blah 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 blah. Funny. I think it would be really, int- it would be a really interesting point if there was something really bad happening right now, but. You know there isn't, uh, other than our democracy falling apart in in our in our bare hands. But it's entirely possible. You know, Trump's Trump's done uh, uh, things far uh, far more insane. So, um, you know, I I would hand it to him. Um, uh, last question on on Trump before we move on to some tech stuff real quick, um, and then before we zip out of here, um, does Gabe think that um, uh, that when Trump is out there tweeting about this stuff at two in the morning, three in the morning. Are people in the White House kind of trying to stop him from doing this or have they just kind of given up? I mean, I one of the things that's been so fascinating about both the Bob Woodward book and the reporting uh, on Anonymous in the New York Times and the op-ed and Gabe stuff and so on is that for many – for two years now, people have been – there's been a, an anonymous kind of operation going on where things have been taken off his desk and Trump's desk, and he hasn't been told about certain things. I remember there was a piece last year uh, uh, that came out about how Trump, uh, they give him, only give him good news about himself. Yeah. They wouldn't show him bad news. Uh, all these things that were happening. Has that, is that still going on? Do we know? Or, well, you know, it's or funny. do we not know? I, I, I shouldn't, I can't fully answer for Gabe, but I, I think that the, um, you know the telling anecdote that begins the epilogue of the Woodward book, right? Is um, Gary Cohn taking the the, the paper that would um, that would yeah. pull the United States out of chorus our our treaty with South Korea, which we are engaged in to um, prevent North Korea from nuking 
Seattle to smithereens. Um, you know, he, he just took it off his desk so that Trump would never sign it and um, and that we'd all be able to, to live happily ever after. I think that um, uh, p- there there is a class of people in the White House like John Kelly, um, and I think you know there is a sort of um, sense that that, uh, that you know the the uh, McMasters of the world are also pre- preventing. Um, uh, Trump from from nuclear annihilation and are probably frustrated when he uh, extemporizes on Twitter. But I also think, and I, and I think Jared and Ivanka are also probably um, uh, uh, frustrated and, and their camp is frustrated when they see him doing that stuff, but they're probably used to it in a way that, that or they're conditioned for it in a way that few others are. But here's the thing that is important, and this is, this is just my observation from talking to people who um, uh, have direct familiarity with, uh, with what goes on in the White House. It's like high school, and it's it's Schadenfreude um, in the sense that there's no direct bad news. So Trump could do something terrible, right? He could he could subpoena Omarosa or or sue her and, and try and make it a Supreme Court case, and that would embarrass a lot of people. But it would, it, you know, it would so belittle one person that it would make somebody else look good or relieved or happy or it would take the heat off of them. So as much as you know, now I'm I'm speculating and hypothesizing a little bit, but as as much as um, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions, for instance, might be appalled at um, at the way Trump is behaving in the wake of Anonymous or the way that he uh, completely bullshitted uh, the, the his response to the hurricane in Puerto Rico, he's also probably relieved that like Trump moved the news cycle somewhere else, and mm-hmm. and I think that there are some people close to the president who are so concerned only with their own um, standing and their, and their own afterlife that, um, that they've really lost sight of the, of the holistic nature of an administration. No, that's a really good point. And I, I think the other thing that's really that's interesting kind of when you just look at what's going on with, with Trump now is that I think that it's it, – for, for a while, one of the speculations was – well, at first it was like, okay, I hope Trump doesn't come after me. Whether and it was it, businesses were afraid of it. You know, there were times in the very beginning of his presidency where he would tweet about a business and the stock would fall. Um, you know, he would go after someone, and and it was always bad for whoever he was going after. And what I think has happened now is the sauce is thinned out. And you know, if you kind of look at Nike, for example, uh, which decided to take you know to take on uh, Trump with with Colin Kaepernick and. The stock today closed at, at an all-time high uh, for the company ever, 83.47. It's, it's up. I'm just looking right now. It's even up to 83.69 after our trading. Um, this, it's you know, taking on Trump has actually become a good thing for for companies. Um, and right. well, uh, I, I think, think Nike that, is a u- unique um, in a unique it, position. Well, it's unique, but I also think that it's. It, there is a there is a trend that's starting to happen where he's not as powerful as he once was. Um, yes, that's true. And, that's true. Uh, and I and I think that um, you know that's a that's a good sign for people that are on the other end of it. And so, I do th- I um, do think that the other um, uh, you know the the other major uh, news item that came out of Gabe's story today is that um, Ivanka Trump is worried about impeachment. Uh, a source told Gabe. So well, she I, she I fears she... that that Trump's vulnerability and his 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 almost certain um uh almost certain likelihood at least I think so I know we've we've disagreed uh offline about this that that the the Democrats um win the House uh 
will just create a, uh, you know, I don't, they're, they're not going to censure him. I don't think he's going to be removed from office. I don't, I don't think the Democrats have the time or the energy to do that. But, but boy, could they create a like me- mega Mueller sized headache for him? You know, tr- Trump is already cracking under the scrutiny of, of, of Mueller to some degree. And if they want to go through impeachment proceedings, oh my God! I mean, that would just be like like putting his head in a vice. So anyway, um, boy, Nick, I want One to ask you about the other um, big sort of news story of the week. Um, I uh, and it's sort of amazing we we should say because like a week ago people were 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 criticizing our colleagues at the New Yorker for that that uh, needless or just like you know so sort of non-event uh, you know, Bannon uh, controversy. And then uh, within a series of days, Ronan Farrow uh, publishes a story that um, forces Les Moonves to, to, to capsize, leave CBS, and probably lose out on a $100 million uh, severance, although like uh, d- deservedly so. And then this massive, incredible story about Zuckerberg that Evan Osnos wrote, uh, Ghosts in the Machine. Uh, we have both read this story, and I wanted to know, as someone who uh, has spent plenty of time with Zuckerberg and knows the man well, uh, what did you think of the story? Well, I think that um, it's very clear to everyone except Zuckerberg that he is in over his head. Um, I think that it's, you know, and it's also clear that I don't think that Zuckerberg is aware of. I always thought for a long time that Mark Zuckerberg was someone who um, who understood people better than he understood computers. And I still think that that is true. I think that the thing that made Facebook Facebook was that Mark Zuckerberg said, people, kids that I go to school with are just trying to hook up, meet someone, whatever it is, even make friends, you could say, if you, if, if you want to kind of buy into the, to the early days BS. But, uh, but he understood that it was about making a connection for a reason. And he, and he understood that if you created a like button and if you showed people in your newsfeed that have looked at you and, and, and tagged you or whatever it is, that you are, you are tapping into the human potential in a way that someone like Sigmund Freud would have done decades ago. Like he would have understood that. And I think that, that where Zuckerberg fails dramatically in this is that he doesn't understand the other side of of humanity. He doesn't understand people being hurt and people going through all of these things that that we have gone through as a result of Facebook. And the reason so millions of people are no longer using the platform. And I think it was so evident in the story uh, that that is the case. I I remember um, earlier this year there was uh, Zuck was giving a speech somewhere at Stanford or somewhere I don't know where it was, and he was talking. He was giving an example of like some sort of sort of programming thing, and he he was saying. You know, um, he was meant. He meant to say, "If I was a human," and he said, "When before, when I was a human, or something like that." It was like a, and then he corrected himself. He said, "I am a human." And someone at Facebook messaged me, and they said that was a, you know, that was a very funny moment because we all joke around that he's not human. They do, they do so internally there, and I, I think this article kind of was another example of that. And I, and I also think that that the something that's really interesting. I, I sat down with. Um, with Bob Iger uh, last week for the new establishment issue. And one of the things that Bob said to me, which I thought was really fascinating, we were talking about tech companies and how they continually find themselves in a situation where they they can't necessarily, they, they don't do the right thing ever. And I said to him, you know, how is it that, that these companies essentially end up in the situation? And he said, you know, one of the things that's so great about Disney is that they have a set of values they stick to. 
and they have just defined what these values are, and they are about family, and they are about good overcoming evil, and they are about all of these things that you think of when you think of Disney. And whenever they come across a problem, they kind of put it into the into that value machine, and they say, what's the right thing to do? And it's a very, very simple answer. And the thing about these tech companies, and the thing that's so clear about Facebook, is that they don't know what that value is yet. They haven't yeah. defined what it is that they stand for. Just connecting the world is not a value. It's just, that's just a, that's a That's a utility, thing. yeah. That's what, um, th- that's what a, a, a phone line or a cable company does. That's, and, 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 and also, yeah. it's, um. It's a weak talking point. That was that was Sheryl Sandberg's talking point um, for a long time when she tried to cover up uh, how they behave so badly that you know when you when you when you're trying to connect the world you basically you you, you move fast and and um, and uh, gloss over significant problems. Yep, it's um, and I think that I think that I, that hearing Bob say that was a really telling moment for me because I I've. I've, I've, it, it was articulated in a way where I've never really understood why these companies can't make the right decision. And I realized they don't have a set of rules in place within their own companies, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, that says, hey, this is what we are. When you think of – look, for better or worse, when you think of Fox News, they, we, we are a conservative news organization that's going to give you conservative spin. And that's what you know. That's what it is. And so they, therefore, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have Hillary Clinton on to talk about her new book in a positive way. They, it, and it's, and in the same, the same thing with, with entire brands and Hollywood outlets and magazines and all these things. Like they are all defined by something, and they have a, a mantra that you know is talked about in the hallways. But when you think about a company like Facebook, there is nothing. You don't know what it is that they stand for. Uh, and I think that. Um, when you when you look at the quotes in that article in the New Yorker, uh, you can and and you just look at the things that that Zuckerberg has done and said in the last few years, uh, you can see this is someone who just doesn't get it. Well, you know what's funny that the um, it, it was an astonishingly exhaustive story uh, for for um, uh, someone who's been um, who's been written about so many times, and, I, and I'm curious actually. To, I, I would love to know one day. Um, uh, the origin of it, whether whether you know Facebook's communications department uh, approached the New Yorker, whether the New Yorker thought this was a, a, the right moment to um, to uh, to to you know try this effort. Um, but that aside, you know, Bill Gates is, is quoted in the story, um, and presumably um, uh, uh, maybe used in the background a little bit. But Bill Gates was somebody who was equally. Uh, Profoundly ambitious and and uh, and singular uh, in their focus um, as a young person in building something and just like straight out of fucks to give right. I mean, Microsoft um, spent three years in 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 litigation with the Justice Department and um, it felt that they had the birthright to to kind of just d- destroy competition and do whatever the hell they wanted to. And um, uh, it wasn't reckless; it, it, it was business, but. Um, but it was it was business first, and then sort of ramifications second, and uh, and Gates had this like people forget that Gates was like that because he had this extraordinarily uh, and 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 prolonged and and um, an intense period as a philanthropist where Microsoft settled into a very successful company that didn't have to grow at the percentage that it did in its its first decade. Uh, it still mints tons of money, and Gates has spent the last fifteen years trying to do right by the world and and pick the right businesses to give it all away. And um, and he throws a little bit of shade towards Zuckerberg because, you know, Zuckerberg's company is still chasing that growth. 
and it, it it's he's he's going through the period that Gates went through, and it's unclear, as you say, whether this uh, public castigation is going to have the actual effect on Zuckerberg, where it makes him realize, okay, I've accomplished a lot as a business, and I'm just going to settle this here, and it's going to operate, and I'm going to let someone else take it over, and and I'm but I'm going to make sure that it's regulated and does right by society, and that I will drift towards other endeavors. You know, so that's that just I, I don't know it's if it inter- will no. happen. I think that I, I don't think it will, and I th- and, le- and if it does, I think it will be manufactured. And and the reason I say that is I, you're, I completely remember I remember googling Bill Gates years and years and years ago in the very very early days of the internet, and and you would the first articles that would come up were about how Bill Gates was the Antichrist, and there were like pictures of there were little pictures and gifts and things of him, you know, with little devil horns, and I distinctly remember those because it's so starkly different from what he is today, but. Right. I think that there's two different things between Gates and Zuckerberg. I think at the end of the day, Gates is a human being who who you don't question. You never, no one ever questioned if he was a robot. Uh, you know, he seems like someone who maybe he was ruthless and he was and and destroyed companies and and people's lives as a result of that. Um, but he was still at the end of the day there was a human side to him that was very very real and very visible in the same way that there was to Jobs, even though he was also a jerk. Um, and with Zuckerberg, I, I've never seen that. I've I've only ever seen you know this weird person. I remember once I I was at a his sister's birthday party years ago and and was talking to him and and he had seen on Facebook that that I had been surfing and he was like have you ever thought about hooking your surfboard up so that when you go in the water it automatically updates your Facebook feed to say you're surfing and I was like what like no I just want to go surfing I want to get away from Facebook and all this tech stuff while I do that I don't and I think that it's hard he he he's incapable of thinking of anything that is not related to the thing that he's obsessed with which is his company so I think that that's the first aspect of it but I think the second part of it is I've covered a lot of very successful people over the years, and the people that I admire the most are the ones that reach success and realize that getting there was it was not when once they reached it that it was not the thing that that, that was going to make them happy. There were other things that would make them happy: their family, you know, being creative without worrying about how many people consume the creative thing that they created. What, even building a business that gives people jobs, whatever. I mean, as hokey and ridiculous as it sounds, like these are the people who I think at the end of the day come to this realization of, oh, I'm not doing it to win. I'm doing it because I love it or it gives brings joy to the world or goodness or whatever it is. And I don't think – and Zuckerberg has already succeeded. He's already reached the top. He has the most users on any platform in the history of the world, and it is not enough for him. Oh, yeah, more, more know, people two, than um, – more people – Facebook is bigger than Christianity. Yeah, it's it's it is a quarter of the planet use it, and yet when, took Jesus I mean, yeah. two thousand years to do that, and, and didn't even have it in his lifetime. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. And he didn't. He, and he, look how many people are helping him. And and <laughs> yeah. I think that uh, I think that what's so interesting is that this is someone who, and I don't mean to be a dick when I say this. I don't mean to be an asshole. Like I'm not trying to make fun of Zuckerberg. And, but I, I look at him and I think to myself, like, this is someone who, um, who, who looks at this platform with two and a half, 2.35 billion people on it and thinks to themselves, why, why are more people not on this platform? There's still right. three quarters of the planet that are not on here. And, and for that reason alone, I don't, I don't ever imagine that he will be, 
um, he will be where uh, where Bill Gates is today, trying to cure world hunger or whatever it is, and stop malaria, um, fix education in Africa. I just don't. I don't think that he's wired that way. But the only hope is uh, is that he realizes that Facebook is is becoming more detrimental to the world than positive in some respects, um, and he stops that for for whatever the driving reason is. But but that's that's really the only hope here. Well, you know who definitely is not ever going to be where Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg are? Who? Me and you? Me and you. That's because we bought at the height of the housing market. Just kidding. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a couple other things. But yes, that's right. And who who even wants the headaches? Uh, Yeah, exactly. I I actually would not in any way, shape, or form. Although private jet sounds pretty fun. It does sound nice. I, 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 I I could live with that. Um, all right, John Kelly, it has been fascinating. As always, I'm going to get back to finishing up Fear by Bob Woodward. Uh, Me too. Uh, the, the salacious, delicious book. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. All right, thanks. Talk to you tomorrow, Nick. Bye. Thanks to my guest this week, Spencer Roscoff, and, of course, John Kelly. And a little thank you from my son for uh, giving us that little cute intro in the beginning. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. I do sound like a robot as I'm saying this. I've said it so many times. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, my editors at Vanity Fair. And you know what? A big thank you to you for listening all the way to the end. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. We will see you next week for another exciting episode of Inside the Hive.